listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Uh, grateful that you're here this morning as... Many of you know, or if you're a uh, first-timer with us, we're really grateful that you're here. But we're kind of uh, towards the tail end of a series called Engaged. And that was um, really a kind of an impetus of that uh, sermon series is to be able to, to think about ways that we're engaging in our walks with the Lord. How is he calling us to understand his word? How is he calling us to pray, to move towards our community, nation, world? What does evangelism look like? And this morning, if you're our guest, you chose... <laughs> the Sunday to show up about being engaged in politics. Lucky you, right? But I do want to tell you this, and, and here's why I'm excited about it, is because I feel like this is a perfect Sunday to talk about being engaged in politics. And here's why. Number one, we got an extra hour of sleep. So we are all fired up, baby. Like, it's, it's in. It's in. We're ready to go. So that's one. Secondly, the Cowboys can't lose today because they have a bye week. So... I tell my, my daughter because she's now apparently a Cowboys fan. But the Cowboys aren't playing today, so we don't have to be distracted about football. And thirdly, and most critically, Jared and I are leaving for the Philippines tomorrow. So I'm going to light the fuse, and then I'm going to go all the way to the other side of the world so you can't find me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, but really, what the, what the goal is, is to think very specifically. Because what I do sense, and what I do feel, is like there's this... I don't know, you guys ever watch like on the Nat Geo channel Shark Week? That's what it feels like, right? Like we're going scuba diving and we're going scuba diving in a whole host of sharks where everybody's ready to bite and, and we're doing it without a cage. And there's just so many landmines that you and I both sense that we can step on as we, we walk towards thinking about how the Bible frames an understanding how to think politically in a world that's pretty polarized and very, very divisive. It's interesting how frequently the topic of politics comes up. When I was dying on my Ironman uh, and trying to survive, we were on the tail end of the run, and I was talking with a gentleman I'd never met before, and surprisingly, what's the topic? Politics. I don't know why it comes up in the midst of a suffer fest. We decided to just make it worse. And so we're, we're talking about all of these things. And he, he works in D.C. And, and here's what we decided. I mean, you fix things on an Ironman. And we fixed the world. We decided that we know what course corrections to make. But here was his assessment and his analysis. Two things have been lost in our world in the context of political discourse. Civil discourse and critical thinking. The two C's. We've decided that those are the two problems that we need to address. And then I don't remember if he ran uh, after me and just decided to keep going or if I passed him. But nonetheless, that was the end of our conversation. And that's what tends to happen, right? We talk about politics and we have some conversations about these things. And we, we start to kind of come to some levels of agreement. But then we really have to wrestle with what it means to get traction. And so that's this morning. The goal is to be as specific as I possibly can to think through how we frame our approach politically. As Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians, God has something to say to us in engaging in the political environment. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 8 to 18. But just like in any setting, like I've been thinking a lot about 
how often it's not just Shark Week, it seems like, but also it feels like a roller coaster of doing all these things. And when I was a, a younger kid, we went to Disneyland together, and there was a, a public service announcement that came on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And here's the public service announcement, right? Keep your hands and arms inside. Please remain seated the whole time. And then it says, hold on to your hats and glasses, for this is the wildest ride in the wilderness. (laughs) I feel like that's a very similar public service announcement I'm going to give this morning, right? Keep your arms and hands inside. Don't throw anything at me and don't put your hands in your pockets. But also at the same time, like there is a level of trying to understand really how to frame even the discussion. Where do you begin? So here's where I wanted to begin. I have four biblical truths that I think are going to overshadow and supersede and set the foundation. And then what I want to do is also give you three pastoral convictions. Before we even jump into the text, I want four fundamental truths to guard our discussion this morning. Number one, the word of God is sufficient, reliable, applicable to every nation, everywhere, at all times. So here's what we're saying. As the word of God frames our understanding of how to handle situations and even think politically, one of the things that we must be aware of is that the word of God is sufficient for the Christians who were serving in communist China and being persecuted in North Korea as much as it has to say to us who are living in a free society in the United States of America. It's sufficient for them and sufficient for us. It has things to say about postures and understandings of how we approach the political conversation that are as applicable to individuals who are being persecuted for their religion as much as it has to say to those who are freely exercising that same religion. There are things and guardrails that the word of God gives us. Number two, God is sovereign at all times in human history. And he is calling his people to intimacy and faithfulness. Meaning that the ultimate end goal of the directives that the Bible gives us is not to get our way politically, but to draw us into intimacy with him and function in a way that represents the character and the nature of God. That faithfulness is a part of how God is generating a desire for us to to move towards these conversations to engage faithfully in politics. Number three, and this is where I'm really going to develop up some steam here. We can't trust a broken system to fix what is a God problem. We can't trust a broken system to fix what is a God problem. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is unashamedly clear that the greatest need for all of humanity is the gospel, not a better political environment. The most significant thing that every individual on the face of this planet needs is to encounter the life-transforming, rescuing power of Jesus first and foremost, not just to agree with our positions. And I'm not suggesting that we don't have positions, nor am I suggesting that we don't vote. I voted before I'm leaving. I think it's critical that we engage in the system that the Lord has called us to. But again, we have to keep what's most important, most important. And what's most important is that the world is lost and broken and dying and corrupt. And what it needs is a savior, not a new political entity. That's a biblical conviction. Number four, this is where I'm really going to get some great friends. There's a difference between right and wrong and right and left. This is important 
Because what we're saying is that there is an ability to evaluate and to think clearly and accurately about how God gives us an understanding of what morality, ethics, biblical worldview looks like as we understand the human condition. And right and wrong is the conversation before right and left is the conversation. Here are my three pastoral convictions, and this just comes from what I deeply feel as part of a, a pastor and a nation that is growing more and more divisive, and not just divisive externally. Like, I have never lived in a time where I have felt the church more fractured, and it concerns me. And so here are three pastoral convictions. I don't want to mute our passion. I want the entire Bible to direct it. I'm not telling you or I not to feel significantly about the things that are going on around us. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be concerned about the issues of life and gender and all of those components. What I'm suggesting is that the Bible needs to direct our response to those things. That what we would anticipate and expect as the Bible moves us in those directions is that we expect brokenness from a broken system and we don't expect people who don't believe in Jesus to behave like they do. What they need is Christ and moving to the rescuing power of grace in the midst of those conversations becomes an avenue in which the gospel does its work. Second, pastoral convictions. I don't want to ignore our collective frustration. I want, I long for it to be channeled by the gospel. I understand that so many things over these last few years have changed in ways that absolutely, completely surprised many of us. But some of the things that I have heard cause me concern that there's a growing animosity and frustration about the church and even how we do what we do and even leadership and pastors become the source of, of criticism and criticalness of how they handled COVID and, and, and we're targeting and we're turning our attention and expecting that one another are enemies. When the adversarial relationship that we have is with an enemy that seeks to kill, devour, and destroy. And let me tell you something, I think he's being fairly effective. And so what we need is to reorient rethink, allow the Bible to direct our decisions and passions with regards to how we handle the things in front of us. And my third pastoral conviction is that we don't have to lose biblical conviction nor demonize others to engage faithfully in politics. We don't have to surrender the dignity of someone who vehemently disagrees with us and demonize them in order to feel like we've made our case or made our point. We can be biblically faithful and still hold the image of God for the other person in tension. We can still love well and disagree. How? Here we go. Hold on to your hats and glasses, as they say. I want to start off our conversation, although you guys are going to be in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18, I want to set the precedent real quick with a story that shows up in all four of the Gospels, and each gospel writer gives us a unique vantage point of what took place as this transpired. I'm choosing to use Luke's vantage point, but I'm going to refer to the other three. Verse 47 of Luke chapter 22 says this, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12 was leading them and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike out with sword? 
And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders uh, who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber who with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now John tells us that it's Peter that drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear. But Matthew says that he rebukes Peter in a very significant way and says, why would you even draw your sword? Do you not know that I could commission and plead with the Father of heaven and he would dispense legions of angels on my behalf? He tells Peter, I don't need you to defend me. What I think is happening in this situation is Jesus communicating very, very clearly. The biblical church does not fight fire with fire. We don't do and behave the way the world behaves. We don't attack the way that we feel attacked. Here's the premise of what I believe is most critical for us to encounter and think about as we engage in politics faithfully. In a world that's losing its mind, the church cannot. We must be that anchor where we're directing people to a hope beyond this world. That when we find that agitation and that adversarialness and that anger that just continues to fester underneath, the tendency is to say, we're not getting our way, so I'm gonna fight fire with fire. And, and it, it never ends well and diminishes the actual reality of the gospel. When the world is losing its mind, the church cannot. So how? First Peter Chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, I think, set the roadmap for how we can consider what the Lord is doing in our midst and how to engage faithfully in politics. Here's what he says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those who were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days and let him, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ as the Lord, uh, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason what you believe politically. No, right? For, for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet, how should you do it? Gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We don't fight fire with fire. When the world is losing 
It's mine. The church cannot. Why? Because I believe that one of the main reasons for the church is to be a city on a hill, a light to the darkness. Like this is the place that can direct society in a way to value what God values by communicating that every person has and bears the image of God. Every person has hope and can be rescued by the saving power of Jesus Christ. That His death on the cross was sufficient for them as much as it's sufficient for us. So if I'm gonna sacrifice anything in the context of this life, I'm gonna sacrifice my desire to get what I want for the sake of what God demands of me, which is that which calls people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That that is the most significant kingdom that God is building, and it's one for eternity, not one that is earthly. So when Peter, as the one who cut the servant's ear off, is coming from a place of realizing what it's like to take up the sword... He knows what it's like to be rebuked by Jesus. He understands the substance of what it means to act in the midst of a situation where he really felt compelled to defend Jesus. He thought he was doing the right thing. And yet his instructions now, post that learning moment in his life with Jesus, he starts off by telling us this. He says that... You should have a tender heart, brotherly love. But in verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil. And the focus of this is behavior. Don't fight fire with fire. Don't do what's being done to you. But then he, he adds more to that. He says, or reviling for reviling. The purpose of that is to talk specifically about speech. How you say and how I say what I say. Is it any different than what the world says about us? Am I repaying, reviling for reviling? Is my speech seasoned with the truth of the gospel? Is there a value of the work that God is doing in my life in such a way that dignity and civil discourse and ability to disagree but communicate about what directs our lives is so critical. He tells followers of Christ in the midst of suffering. Now, you know, Peter had experienced a, 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 a very volatile political environment, Rome was not so kind to Christians in the times of Christ. Rome was not so conducive to open worship. There were false gods. There were sexual innuendos. There were involvement and promiscuity all over the place. They valued things that the Bible didn't value at all. Yet it is in that moment, in the midst of what, what Israel would say was an occupying nation, taking over, making decisions that were in complete contrast to their ability to love and follow God, that Jesus shows up and communicates an, a radically different reality of what it means to engage politically. So he tells us, don't pay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, do what? Bless for those who you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he uses Psalm 34. We all know that, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's saying that as we are so occupied with the reality of the goodness of God, here's what happens. If you desire to love life and you want to see good days, which all of us do, we want our lives on the earth to not only matter for something, but there's a part of us that says, "I, I wish it wasn't so hard. I wish things weren't so difficult. It seems like things are so adversarial. I can't find my bearing in a world that seems to have completely lost its mind. And so here's how we get our bearings back. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
Whoever desires to love life has to guard against evil speech and deception. Do what is good, not just what you do, but what you say. So here's what I, I want to suggest to you this morning. If it's true that the world is losing its mind, but the church cannot, that we need to be that city on a hill directed by the truth of God's word, his direction, then no matter what situation you're in, evil is never a biblical strategy. Whatever situation we find ourselves in and whatever challenges surmount around us, Choosing evil and what we think might be good is not a biblical strategy. God tells us through Peter to keep our lives from those things and even our lips from those things that committing evil and the same evil that's committed to us is not achieving anything except for the fact that it's helping us recognize that as much as we're frustrated with the evil around us, that same evil exists inside of our own hearts. We can't attach God's name to any act that is evil. Can't. You and I cannot endorse what God does not endorse. And for many of us, we're clear on some of those positions and, and recognize very fully that we're, we're on. But then we realize that in the desire to achieve the very ends we hope to achieve, we find ourselves willing to demonize and devalue the image of God in others. I think that what Peter says here is very pertinent for us. Turn away from evil. Do good, seek peace, and pursue it. I don't think that the Bible is telling us to fade into the background, to isolate ourselves from the world. I think the Bible is compelling us to engage, to, to vote, to be involved in the things that are around us, and to have those conversations. Because we've got to be able to see, as we seek peace, where there are places where chaos exists. And chaos exists always where evil is running rampant. So I'm not asking us to sit on our hands and just let things play out. I'm saying that what we have to keep primary as primary, the gospel and intimate connection with Jesus is our primary goal. Hebrews, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross. Then what? Scorning at shame, right? He understands what it's like to experience animosity for the sake of the gospel. He knows what it means to be reviled. He knows what it means to, to be approached and abused and betrayed in so many ways. And yet, for the sake of the gospel, the cross stands at the forefront of our primary focus. Our goal is not just to get people to agree with our opinions. Our goal is to get people to the cross, and I think sometimes the reason for the adversarialness and the animosity that even exists within the context of churches is because we've lost focus on what's most important. The preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter nine says it this way. I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Oh, that's some good words right there, right? Like, it's not as though we're thinking that the reason why the gospel is so fixed in my mind, the desire for us to engage politically and to move towards the understanding of how the gospel frames our understanding of biblical worldview is not so that everything works out. We don't know what awaits us. Certainly, there can be those and will be those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and eternity and the kingdom will be built because the gospel is going forth from the church. 
but there will also be those who will respond with animosity towards the truth of the gospel. We don't know what's coming, but we know who is in charge of the world. God is not off his throne. And no political entity that sits in the White House is God is unaware of and not working in the midst of. There's a sense in which his sovereignty is working. Now, I'm communicating that it's important for us to consider being engaged and thinking thoughtfully about how we can have these conversations. But the political conversations are are all an avenue to communicate about the life-rescuing, life-transforming power of the gospel. And the very basic conversation that I think every one of us can have with every person in our community, nation, and world is this. Hey, how do you think the world is going right now? It's not so great, is it? (laughs) These are pretty rugged. Things like there's violence all over the place. And they're like, yeah, it's terrible. Man, let me tell you about a time when that will not be the case. I have a sense that all of history is marching to an end and it's directed by God. And and there's a sense in which in the midst of the storm and the violence and the animosity and the adversarialness of our culture, I find peace and hope because I believe that Jesus is directing my thoughts and minds and This world is not ultimately my home. I don't think it's ever really going to be the place that I want it to be. So I'm going to involve in it. I want to seek the peace of my city. But in the context of those things, my hope is in another life, in another world. Have you ever heard about Jesus? I'd love to just tell you a little bit about how he directs our hearts now, how he's involved in every single one of our aspects. You, You find fear about what the future holds? Are you anxious at all about the world that's going around? I mean, Do you sense that World War III is like on the doorstep? I mean, does it concern you at all about all these things? Yeah, yeah, I'm concerned too. My hope's not in this world. See, the gospel is ready and relevant every moment, every time, every conversation for everything. Why are we not having those conversations? Maybe we are. Our passion is directed for doing good. So here's my suggestion. The very air we breathe is poisoned by aggressive political animosity. It's like we breathe it in this way and and it it can become intoxicating of somehow we just got to fight and we've got to choose sides. But if the biblical convictions are true, then the, the conversation is not about right and left, it's about right and wrong. And we need to be able to critically think about how in each of those camps there is corruption and sin that is running prevalent. My hope is not in a political party. My hope is in Jesus. Our hearts must be set apart as Christ matters most. So in verse 12, he says this. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against all who do evil. It's interesting to me that in the context of a fairly politically volatile environment that Peter has even found himself in, in persecution and animosity for being a Christian and an occupying nation and Israel's not in the place that they feel like it should be and all of these things that are taking place, he draws back to Psalm 34 and says, you know what, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he he gives us this indication of when we think about blessing those who curse us and, and caring and not fighting fire with fire, he said, you know, the Lord is attentive to the prayers of his people. I wonder how much that compels us to realize that the first avenue of dealing with the brokenness of the world is on our knees more than it's on Facebook. I just wonder if there's something to consider 
that a church convinced and committed to the reality of communion with God through prayer and pleading on behalf of those not only who don't know Jesus and are so convinced about their own self-identity or the struggles that we're, we're on our knees before we're on our social platforms. I wonder what that would mean as we would think about pleading for our nation and our world to a God who is attentive to the prayers of his people. But all those who do evil, God is against. (laughs) Again, I think it's critical and it's worth saying that God does not endorse evil regardless of what camp you're in. He doesn't come alongside and say, well, because your motives are noble and you want good things, but you are doing evil things to get to good things that I'm okay with it. God does not say that, right? Evil is evil. And so the goal is to say, look, I want to live righteously before God and him to direct my understanding. How do we do that? Here's the advice of Peter who tried sword for sword and it didn't work. First time in the Bible where Jesus healed someone that didn't ask for it, which I think is pretty awesome. He had this servant who got his ear cut off. Like he just, wrong place, wrong time, dude. And yet Jesus is like, I mean, I would love to have been there being like, let me, just, let me just put that back on for you. That's not what I intended to do. What a crazy scenario. Here's what, here's what Peter says and gives us, I think, some helpful advice. Now, who is there to do harm to you if you are zealous for doing good? Okay, so if you're doing the good thing, could you, could you be about the right thing and, and still get harmed? And, and Peter's like, yeah. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But then he tells us this, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope that you have. So let me suggest that some of the political animosity that exists in our world is to uncover that our hope is misplaced. (laughs) Here's what I mean. Like many of us, myself included, often think and have even probably verbally said that somehow in some way, depending on who's in office, whether or not God is done with the United States of America or not. And my hope tends to be in who's in office. And so what happens is all of this animosity and vitriol that comes out only betrays that my hope is misplaced. What I'm saying and what Peter is saying is that you need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. You hope in Christ. People see that your hope is in Jesus alone, not betrayed by other things. We always need to be ready to give an answer, to give an answer and a defense for the hope that lives and breathes inside of us. We're ready to defend the truth of the gospel in the midst of every, from the marketplace to any ministry that we're called into. We communicate about the reality of what Jesus has done in our lives. We're prepared to give an answer and a defense for the hope that we have, more so than we are prepared to give a defense and demonize those who don't agree with our political positions. When we suffer, let it be for doing good, not for what is evil. I think it's critical to just consider that when the world is losing its mind, the church cannot. The Bible calls us to not fight fire with fire, 
but to communicate that God, the sovereign, providential creator of the universe, is at work in innumerable ways, has as much authority as he did four years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, and 1,000 years ago. His authority has not been diminished. He has not changed. And his ultimate goal, Matthew 28 and commission, is that what would happen? Disciples would be made. People would come to faith in Jesus Christ. You want a culture to change? Give them the gospel. You want lives to be changed, perspectives to be changed, thoughts, attitudes, and actions to be changed? Then realize one thing, and I need to realize it too. My heart needs to be changed too. My sin is as egregious as those I disagree with. My vehemence and animosity towards those who disagree with me is as much in need of redemption as those who I disagree with. I need the gospel as much as those I'm preaching to. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And that hope has a name. That hope is Jesus. And so what I would encourage us to consider in the days ahead is that we don't disengage from the political discourse. We don't, you know, it's like that Thanksgiving time where there's two things you don't talk about around the Thanksgiving table, right? Religion and politics. Why? Because you know it's just gonna stir up controversy and, and fights and animosity. What if in the midst of those conversations, the very reason for those conversations were an avenue to talk about Jesus? What if those that we disagree with and those who are completely affronting the truth of the biblical worldview was willing to actually have a conversation with and the conversation was about Jesus? What about me also being willing to confess that I've asked God to endorse evil actions and attitudes that I've had because I think my end and my goal is more noble. I can't do those things. God never endorses what is evil, even the evil in my own heart. So as we pray, I would ask you to consider that prayer is not a last resort, but a first avenue of thinking about how God has called us. Pray how you engage politically. Pray about who you're voting for. Think about the opportunities of God giving you people in your life to share the truth of the gospel with. But as the world is losing its mind, the church cannot. We cannot turn on one another. We need to keep what's most important, most important. And that's the truth of the gospel. All of us need the rescuing, transforming grace of Jesus. And so does the world around us. Let's make sure what we're defending is the hope we have inside, not the hope we have for what this earth could bring. Deal? Let's pray.